0: Factor Podcast. What is up, College of Cross fans? You're watching episode number 257 of the Lax Factor Podcast. I am your host, Ted Hoost, and today we're going to talk about uh, games from Friday and Saturday. I will not forget the games from Friday this time. Uh, We'll start out with Hopkins against Maryland, then we'll do Notre Dame, Carolina, uh, Virginia, Syracuse. Cornell played, Army played, Nova played. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about St. Joe's, Penn State, Michigan, Denver, Yale. We're going to talk about a buttload of games today uh, officially, and then we'll get into a little bit of the playoff scenarios and things of that sort. But I think I'll cover the playoff scenarios in uh, Wednesday's show. And as I said, uh, show show times and dates and everything like that the the weekend recap will now be on Monday through the remainder of the season because as we get into conference tournament play st- some of them start this upcoming weekend we we want to make sure to cover the Sunday games and all of that because there's going to be a lot more of those played uh, before I get into it as always be sure to like subscribe hit the notification bell if you're watching on YouTube if you're listening or watching on Spotify or any other podcast platform just share the crap out of the podcast with your friends tag people uh, let people know what we're doing here and that they can get recaps every Monday with highlights and all that crap. So I digress. I'm going to... Oh, and then as always, you can go to laxfactor.com. You can get uh, uh, watch our videos there, see what we're putting out as we post everything the morning that we put it out. You can get Lax Factor podcast-related apparel and non-Lax Factor podcast-related t-shirts and things like that. I am going to shut up. First game we got to talk about, rivalry game here, and it was the best game of the weekend overall, was the number seven, Johns Hopkins, taking on number three, Maryland in College Park, Maryland. Now, for sure, the game of the weekend, the outcome didn't disappoint as Hopkins and Maryland did battle right to the very end of this game, and it featured, I believe the technical term is a metric shit ton of chirping, lead changes, ties, and more. Oh, hits, throw some hits in there too, it started out insanely physical, so Picking up in the fourth quarter, Hopkins held a 10-9 lead with a chance to extend said lead, but Brian Rupel made a monster save on a doorstep look by Brendan Grimes just off to his left, right on the crease. Uh, on the ensuing clear, Rupel found John Gepper alone, all by himself in the middle of the field. He hit him. He booked it upfield and hit Daniel Maltz, who buried it while getting wrecked. Now we're tied up at 10s. 8.40 left in the fourth quarter. Braden Erksa dodges up the right side and tries to toss the ball up top. But as he releases it, Bodan Sluzik got his hands forced the ball to the deck, and after executing a perfect man ball, Carson Brown picks the ball up, tears ass upfield, tosses the ball to his right. Technically, I wouldn't have thrown it there. He throws it to his right to Degnan, uh, who then throws the rope across the field to Melendez, who then one-touches it down to Angelus, who took the extra step, step to greatness, as Quint would say, and he buried it. Hopkins is back up by a goal. Maryland, flared on a flail, flared. Maryland failed on a clear around the 437 mark looked like it was offsides that gave Hopkins the ball back in a settled set with 58 seconds left on the shot clock that's important because when you turn the ball over in the middle of the field the other team doesn't have to deal with as much of a clear so they end up with a longer shot clock on that first possession than they would normally get Melendez busted a swim dodge on Makar got up the left side he didn't use the pick that was set but that screen ate enough of Maycar's attention that he slept on that first step, Melendez scored a diving backhand going up the left side. I presume that video is going to get uh, that highlights going to get this video flagged and my revenue handed to the Big Ten, but it's going to be way worth it. It was a sick goal by Melendez, and that gave Hopkins a two goal lead. Maryland would manage to get one back with 54 seconds left in the game, and Weirman would win the ensuing faceoff, giving the Terps a chance to tie things up. But Zach Whittier turned the ball over with 19 seconds left in the contest. The Jays clear was successful, and Hopkins picked up the monster win against their hated rival, Maryland. Huge key in the victory for Johns Hopkins, and this was a huge key in this victory. Tyler Dunn went 14 of 23 from the dot. His wins held Luke Weirman to 13 of 27 on the day, and that stat is huge. In a one-goal game, the player that surprised the most should get the MVP, and while Melendez paved the way with five points, including the eventual game winner, Dunn had no business actually getting the best of Weirman, except he actually did, which was just absolutely bonkers. Melendez, as I said, two and three for five points off five shots. Very efficient day for him. Jacob Angelis, three and one. Collison, freshman midfielder, two and zero. Dignon, two and zero. Hopkins got it done here, but as we look at the most important Important Stat of the day, Tyler Dunn holding his own on the faceoff dot. Now, Matt Naruski, he's part of that kind of two-headed monster Hopkins use, uses to try to figure out faceoff guys, give Dunn a break. He goes 0-4. But Dunn, you know, he gets it done. 14 of 23 against Luke Weirman, the best faceoff guy in the country. So that is a hell of a job there by Dunn. Uh, Braden Erksa, as a freshman, just an incredible player, a huge pickup for Maryland, a huge surprise, not a surprise that he was this good. I knew Erksa was going to be good. I just didn't know when Erksa was going to be good. I figured he'd be kind of a role player this year, Uh, but being thrust kind of into the spotlight with all their losses, Erksa has had an incredible season so far. He was 4-1, Maltz was 4-0 overall. But like I said, uh, Hopkins, it was it was just a hell of a game. And that goal by uh, Melendez was absolutely disgusting. If we look at the defensive side here, Hopkins did a pretty good job defensively. Scott Smith, he had three cause turnovers. Alex Mazzone, Bodan, Sluzik, and Carson Brown, all two apiece. So that factored heavily as well. And then in terms of the goalie battle, not a great day to be a goalie overall. Both goalies struggled. Marcel just six saves against, 11 goals against, and Brian Rupel eight saves against, 12 goals against. And right now, these teams are just jockeying for position in the Big Ten tournament. Every Big Ten team makes the tournament. Now Hopkins leg up here because they beat Maryland. But in the end, it, it, everybody's going to be in the tournament. Everyone's going to beat the living hell out of each other here in the Big Ten as they get through. So I'm not going to go into any playoff scenarios for the Big Ten because who cares? They're all in, which which I think is kind of lame. I don't think you should have every team be in the tournament, but it's probably a power move. Uh, so we're going to stop talking about that game, and I'm going to talk a little bit less about each one, just cover the main points. Uh, with the idea being here, I want to cover a hell of a lot more games as we're getting into you know some of these lower level games still being hugely important in terms of how it'll shape the NCAA tournament. Next one I want to talk about, number 14, North Carolina against number one, Notre Dame. Dewey Egan bullied his way into a question mark dodge that resulted in a goal for Carolina that tied things up at ones early in the first quarter. But then shit got serious as Notre Dame went on a six goal run that ran through into the second quarter. The first first goal was, oddly enough, unassisted and scored by Jake Taylor. Not something you see a whole lot. Not something you really see ever. Taylor picked up a GB. UNC shut everyone off. It was actually a nice little defensive stand there real quick for UNC. But Cooper Frankenheimer got a bit aggressive. He lost his footing as he was cross-checking Taylor. uh, Taylor inside rolled him. Slow sprinted to the crease, and I say slow sprinted because it was a slow sprint. Stuck it just as he got above GLE while eating a glancing blow from a sliding defender. The final goal of the run was by Chris Kavanaugh, who dodged up the right side from X and with the help of a pick at GLE that put both defenders' brains in a blender. Kavanaugh had his hands free at the top of the 5-5, and ripped one that went through both defenders. Krieg barely saw as he was badly screened 7-1 Notre Dame at this point. Carolina would answer with their own run, this one of the four goal variety. That run was capped by Ryan Levi who buried uh, 4 yards, who buried it 4 yards off the crease, not too far above GLE on a dish by Long Pole Andrew Geppert. This got UNC back to within two goals as the score at the half was 7-5 Notre Dame. But lacrosse is a game of runs, and as is, as is often the case, Notre Dame went on to score four of the next five goals across that third quarter. Dobson got the first goal of the quarter for the Irish, and Pat Kavanaugh scored the final goal that put Notre Dame up 11-6, a pretty solid three-quarters bouncer that hit the far right pipe and just went in just out of reach of Krieg. It was actually a well-placed, well-placed shot. Sicker in the replay than it looked in the live telecast. The key in this game for Notre Dame was their play on defense. Uh, I was going to just run that together. Uh, defensively, between the boxes, on the ride, anything that had to do with playing defense, Notre Dame excelled. UNC won twenty of the thirty draws on the day. Between Andrew Tyre, he was fifteen of twenty-four, and Graham Schwartz, Schwartz was five of six. But the Irish excelled in all aspects of defensive ball, resulting in the Tar Heels committing eighteen turnovers. And then even better. Thirteen of them were forced by guys wearing shiny green helmets. I, you know, some people didn't like those shiny green helmets. I thought in the telecast they looked pretty sick. They stood out. They were cool. And and for just kind of a one-off, I think they were cool. Pat Kavanaugh forced four of those turnovers, leading everyone on the field. His stat line on the day was incredible. A goal, three helpers, a GB, and four cause turnovers in the riding game. I think he led all guys, at least for Notre Dame, in terms of cause turnovers. And then Brian Tevlin and Will Donovan each scored two. Pat Kavanaugh. Now let's go through his kind of national point totals because we're starting to get to the end of the season where the Tuartan race is a little more important. He leads the nation in points per game with 5.67. He leads the nation in assists per game with 3.78, draws a lot of eyeballs and does a great job helping out his pals. He's also got 26 ground balls, eight cause turnovers. He does everything well and never takes a playoff, alongside his brother who also doesn't take too many plays off. These two kids set the tone for the rest of the team. And right now Notre Dame is just playing off the charts lacrosse and they're going to be a scary draw for the tournament after getting left out of the tournament last year. I heard a lot of people saying they got robbed. I, I They got robbed in the sense last year that in terms of quality, uh, the quality of the team they were and the quality of lacrosse they were playing by the end of the season, yeah, by that logic they got robbed but this was a coaching and administrative mistake that left Notre Dame out of the tournament last year their resume was not good enough to get in when you looked at their resume it didn't hold up because they played too few games and they had some bad losses and that's why they got left off so i don't think they got robbed i think that's a shit take uh, i think the reality is they made an administrative mistake they had a shitty schedule they played too few games that gave themselves too few opportunities to pick up quality wins and when you're playing in you know you're playing in a race like that and you don't have have an automatic qualifier with your tournament. You're going to get fucked every once in a while, which they did. Side note, in terms of uh, how the faceoff battle played out, Colin Hagstrom, he lost 8 of 20 on the day but scored two goals. So as we kind of dig into the stats here and we look at this, uh, like I said, uh, 20 of 30 of the faceoffs went to Carolina, but if we look at what Hagstrom did, 8 of 20, almost 50%, two goals. Will Lynch kind of got smoked a little bit more and that played better into those stats there, but Hagstrom Hagstrom's two goals almost, you could say, would erase losing 20 to 30 here because neither Tire or his homeboy Schwartz uh, scored a goal. Uh, Total team effort offensively for Notre Dame here. Nine guys scored at least two points, and we can see that here. We've got Pat Kavanaugh with four at one and three. Dobson, McCann, and Kavanaugh all had three points. Dobson, three goals. Quinn McCann, one and two, and Chris Kavanaugh, two and one. And then we've got Uh, what is it? One, two, three, four, five guys that put up two points between Hagstrom, Taylor Gray, Ricky Ardelli, and Weslin and Jack Simmons. And then another interesting note here for this game, beyond the fact that Carolina has to play Notre Dame twice to finish the season out, uh, eight sets of brothers played in this game between the two teams, which is just a ridiculous statistic when you think about it that way. So, that's it. Uh, Carolina has to play Notre Dame and, and and playoff implications for this one here. Notre Dame's in, nobody cares. They're the number 1 team in the country. I think they're one or two in RPI at this moment. Carolina really needed to win this game and I think if Carolina could have just, you know, freaked everybody out and beat Notre Dame twice, obviously they would have gotten in at that point. I think Carolina, depending on how the rest of the country ends up finishing up here, if Carolina beats Notre Dame in their final game of the season. I think that could be enough to punch their ticket, but it's going to be hairy. They're going to need they're going to need some help from some other teams that are on the bubble, they're going to have to lose. So, we'll dive a little bit deeper into that on Wednesday's show. So, that's it with that game. We're going to jump to my number 12, Syracuse, taking on number four, Virginia. Virginia got things rolling right away, opening the game up with a six-goal run that saw Xander Dixon score three goals, including the final two of said run. His second goal of both the game and the run came at the 446 mark. A perfectly timed cut from Dixon made the Schellenberger feed easy. Dixon received the feed and busted a quick twister low uh, into the opposite pipe, 5-0, Virginia. His third goal of both the game and the run came just under a minute later, this time Jeff Connor dodging to the middle of the field, kind of a left to right dodge from out top. He found Dixon camping down low and to the left. Dixon put a fake high, buried it low. I'm talking to you, Gary Jackson. Uh, And now the Cavs are up six to zip. Syracuse didn't give up. They managed to get back to within four goals off back-to-back goals by Alex Simmons. The first one was his second of the game. It was a nice two-man game between Finn Thompson, who I think Simmons and Thompson have played incredible two-man ball all year, being that they're both Canadians and they know how to play kind of that box-setting tight spaces. Simmons scored a man-up goal about a minute later, his third of the game, up to this point on a crazy cross-field feed by Hilts. And this was sick, too, because on the man-up play, the ball kind of came back around, hit Hilts, and Hilts did not hesitate to... To crossed that all the way across the field to Simmons, who stuck it. That actually made it 9-5 Syracuse. After Syracuse got a defensive stop and looked poised to get back to within three goals, a turnover on the ensuing clear resulted in a quick Peyton Cormier goal off the restart, and the Cavaliers were back up 10-5. It, not, it never got better than that for Syracuse, as UVA would open a 13-5 lead, and that was all she wrote. Interesting enough, Cormier scored that goal then Xander Dixon scored, then Cormier scored, and then Xander Dixon scored again, and that was how it went from 9-5 to 13-5. It was a dark time for Syracuse. I have jokes here. Uh, Syracuse actually held up fairly well. At the faceoff dot, with Johnny Ritchie USA going 10 of 20, Jack Fine had a terrible day. So LaSala still managed to win 17 of 29 of the draws, and he scored a goal. But on a day that Syracuse did enough at the dot to typically make their lives not miserable on offense and defense, they still couldn't get it done. Syracuse committed six turnovers in that terrible first quarter. That was really what sunk their ship as we see the score 7-2 to here and uh, UVA forced 10 of those uh, 15 turnovers, and Cade Sawstead led the way by forcing four on the day. In the end, UVA outplayed Syracuse across almost every aspect of the game. Syracuse has struggled a lot against teams. I've been saying it kind of all year here. Uh, Talent and experience beats or let's say experienced talent beats talented inexperience does that make sense and that's that's what we saw here both of these teams are quality but virginia is an experienced team with a bunch of talent whereas syracuse is a very young team with a bunch of talent Now, I got to say, Xander Dixon, a.k.a. the Slim Reaper, I don't know who to credit with that, but that is a dope nickname. He had himself a monster game. And by monster, I mean 10 points off seven goals and two helpers. That doesn't make sense. It had to be 10 points off seven goals and three helpers, right? Uh, Let's see. Yeah. Oh, no. Nine points off seven goals and two helpers. I was wrong. I was looking at his shots. He only took 10 shots, so that's not bad. Uh, He also picked up five ground balls, caused a turnover. Peyton Cormier, he put up four goals. Thomas McConvey went two and two. Syracuse managed to hold Schellenberger to just two assists off six shots and three turnovers. Schellenberger has kind of continued to play on and off, depending on the day, depending on the opponent here. I'm, I'm still thinking he's hobbled and just not fully healthy. But then again, I mean, your team wins what was it? Uh, what was the score? Uh, Nineteen to twelve. You do really? I guess you do care how Schellenberger plays, but it wasn't like he had to show up on this day here. Alex Simmons paced Syracuse goal scorers with four goals. Cole Kirst put up three goals in a dish, and Owen Hiltz flipped that stat stat line. He went for a goal and three helpers uh, in terms of. And I I'd normally like to show you the stats on the screen, but you can't sort them. Uh, for Syracuse. So I just, it's tough to do that. Uh, Syracuse needed this win. As so we're talking about the playoff implications, Syracuse technically needed to win their final two games to get in here. Uh, this makes it more difficult for them. And just like Carolina losing to Notre Dame this weekend, Syracuse losing to Virginia this weekend, put they were already on the bubble, but I still believe that if Syracuse can beat Notre Dame in their final game of the season, and if um, North Carolina can beat Notre Dame in their final game of the season, I think that'll drop uh, Notre Dame a little bit, but it won't drop their RPI so badly that it's going to count against Syracuse or UNC. And I think if Syracuse can win their final game of the season and UNC can win their final game, I think they both have a shot to get in. Once again, it's just a shot. And they're going to need some help from some other teams in, in the sense of those teams losing. Uh, so, oh, and then goalie, goalie situation here wasn't great again for either goalies. Matthew Noons played well, 10 saves, 10 goals against. Will Mark did not have a bad day, 15 saves, 19 goals against. He did not got get a lot of help on the day from his defense, specifically off ball. Uh, off ball, especially early on in that game, Syracuse's defense did not play well. And uh, Virginia just outplayed him across the board for the most part. Next game, I want to talk about number six, Cornell against Brown. Brown jumped out to a 3 2 lead off a Matteo Corsi goal with 7.41 in the first quarter. The Qes transfer beat his defender to the middle of the field on a straight up sprint dodge, and it was just he just booked it to the middle of the field. Help didn't get there in time. He beat Erlen on what appeared to be the stick side, but I'm not 100% sure. Bad angle. Cornell would then go on to score seven of the game's next eight goals and route to an 8-4 lead. C.J. Kirst put up four goals over this stretch, including the first three goals of the run. He scored the first goal of the run on a dish from Michael Long. Kirst got free, kind of coming across the crease. Uh, Long hit him. He rips it low-to-low and goes five-hole on Therrialt. Kirst also capped the run scoring unassisted off a turnover caused by Michael Long, and although that might not show in the stat book, Long was pestering Trey Taylor while he was trying to clear. Taylor stepped in the crease as he was throwing the ball off his back foot upfield. Whistle was blown. Ball was placed directly in front of Kirst halfway between the box and midfield. He picks it up, got about 14 yards out, and ripped it past the people's goalie low and right. Perfect play- placement. Therial, even though it was kind of a deep shot, really didn't have a chance. Uh, by this point of the game, with the score uh, sitting at 9-4, Kerst had five goals. And I'm going to go through his crap here a little bit, because once again, one of the top Twartan, uh candidates. He finished the game with six goals and three helpers. This is his fourth game of the season with seven or more points. And I'll actually show... Yeah, we're not going to show you. Yeah, screw it. Let's show it to you so you can actually see the visual here. Uh, as I go into curse stats... Yeah, you see here, he had 11 points against Hobart. He was seven and four in that game. He had seven points against Penn. Those were both wins. He had uh, eight points in a win against Marquette, six and two. And then he has that 6-3 and three game here for nine points against Brown. So a hell of a job by Kirst overall. Uh, he's sitting at 55 goals and 15 assists over 12 games. That puts him at second in the country in points per game with 5.55. He's behind Pat Kavanaugh. And first in the country in terms of goals per game with 4.45. So a hell of a job by Kirst. Cornell did an incredible job offensively considering they turned the ball over 17 times and lost 18 of 29 face-offs, so credit the big red defense for playing solid. They forced 10 turnovers while playing pesky defense that resulted in Brown turning the ball over 23 times on the day, which is pretty brutal for Brown. Now for Cornell, in terms of playoff implications and all that crap, this ties. Uh, they're both tied. They're tied with Princeton at the top of the Ivy League standings. They host Princeton in Ithaca next weekend to see who gets that number one seed in the Ivy League tournament. Five of these turnovers came on clears, as Brown only cleared the ball fifteen of twenty. Uh, in terms of successful clears. Uh, C.J. Kirst, 6-3. and three, As I said, Michael Long, 2-2. Two and two. Kirst also had two cause turnovers on the day. Uh, I wonder if he got credited with that cause turnover that he didn't technically cause and that was really caused by Long. Uh, it, it is because he picked the ball up maybe. I don't know. Uh, Billy Coyle, 2-1. and one. Spencer Wertheim, 2-1. and one. So they got the job done here. And then uh, Jack Follows had two cause turnovers on the defensive end. For Cornell, Brown, if we rip through their scores quick, Devin McLean, 2 and 1, Matteo Corsi, the Q's transfer. Wish Q still had him this year three goals, and then we come down to the goalie battle. Not a great day to be Connor Theriault. He's nine saves against, 16 goals against. Chase Erland, a little bit more solid, eight saves against, nine goals against. So uh, the Ivy, we'll go through the playoff scenarios for the Ivy because I think Cornell, Princeton, and maybe Penn are all in, and now it's like Yale and Harvard or somebody are playing it out. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Next game, I want to talk about is Lehigh against Boston U. Boston University jumped out to an early 5-1 lead, but Lehigh would battle back and get back to within two goals off a Christian Muley man-up goal with 831 left in the third quarter. But the Terriers would answer as Lou Perfetto would score on a straight-up bull dodge from GLE on the right into the low crease for a score. Credit to Connor Calderon, though, for winning the face-off on that. Uh, Lehigh scored to get to within 7-5, as I had said. Calderon actually won the draw and that led to the Perfetto goal. So that greatly helped in limiting uh, Lehigh's momentum. A little under three minutes later, Perfetto would find Timmy Lay just off the left side of the crease from X uh, uh, for an easy man-up goal, that, uh, and the lead was back to 9-5 to Boston U, and then it never came back after that. Mike Sisselberger was his usual self for Lehigh. He won 17 of the 28 draws that he took on the day for Boston U, or on the day for Lehigh, but the Boston U defense caused 21 turnovers per the stat sheet. We'll look at it here. I saw this and I was like, what? That can't be true. Cause I'm looking down here and I'm like 21 cause turnovers. That's absolutely insane. Roy Meyer had five of them. Uh, Dane DeGoler, Patrick Morrison uh, each had three Trey Brown and Donnie Howard each had two. So that's, that's just ridiculous. The attackmen got in on the job a little bit. Even Garber ended up with a forced turnover. So I don't know if that was true uh, or not, because you look at how bad Connor Calderon got beat overall at the face-off dot. That's insane. But when you force 21 turnovers on the day, that kind of makes up for losing a lot of the draws. So solid, solid day. Uh, Um, solid day for the Boston University defense. My brain's breaking here. Uh, Lou Perfetto, he was three and four on the day for seven points. Uh, Vince Dalto, three and two. Tommy Bork, two and two. Timmy Lay, two and one. Offensively for, for Boston U, they absolutely got it done. Lehigh wasn't completely outdone though here. Christian Moulet, two and three. Matt Marker, one and three. And we come down here to the goalie battle and we see Matt Garber wins the goalie battle. His team wins the game he has 14 saves against, 11 goals against Nick Picora, 10 saves against, 14 goals against. Not as good, and his team lost by a measly three goals. I was I, For some reason, as I was about to say that, I thought it was a goal, but obviously that wasn't the case here. So we're out of this one. Uh, some people are going to be mad. They, some people would think maybe I should have led with this one here, but I didn't. Uh, Army and Navy, number eight Army taking on Navy in the famous Army-Navy game, and it got bumped up. And was played earlier in the day due to pending storms, but it was Army's defense that made life difficult for Navy's starting attack uh and the midfield units. They shot 0 for sixteen over the course of the first half, the starting attack and midfielders for Navy, and only two for twenty-six over the course of the game. That allowed Army to build a nine-two lead by the half, and they never looked back from there. If we dive into what people did for Army here, Reese Burrick continued being the best player for Army and one of the best players in the Patriot League. He goes four and one for five points off just nine. Nine shots and uh two GBs in, in the mix there. Uh Bailey, O'Connor, and Evan Plunkett each put up two goals. And like I said, if we look at what Navy did here, Xavier Arline had a decent game and he had a sick behind the back overall. So he played better than all of the other guys here that ran attack or midfield for Navy. But if you see, I mean, we got goose eggs. Uh uh John Giroz, he goes o oh for one. Uh it shot 0 for 6. Uh, Mac Haley was 0 for 5. Uh, Henry Tolker, 1 for 4. Dane Swanson, 1 for 4. Just a terrible shooting day overall for Navy. In terms of who played well in the cage, Pat Ryan for Navy. 15 saves off, 11 goals against. This was actually one of the better games played all weekend for goalies. And Knox Dent, which is it's still, that's just a dope-ass name for a goalkeeper. Or a faceoff guy, even a defender. I don't care. That's just a dope lacrosse name. 10 saves, six goals against in the win, and uh, we'll we'll dive a little bit into Patriot League crap here, like I said at the end of the show, in terms of playoff stand, standings and everything, but Army is just ripping shit up in the Patriot League, and I think they're undefeated at this point. Next game I want to talk about here is Marquette against number 13 Villanova. This one needed o- o- uh, overtime to be decided. Villanova was down by a goal with 118 left to play in regulation, and Marquette had the ball. And they took a timeout. So now Nova's faced with a situation. Do we try to wait until the shot clock runs out? I don't remember how much time was on the shot clock at that that moment. But there was enough time between the game clock and the shot clock. They could have let it run out, got the ball back, and had a chance to tie it. They decided, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to go out and double-team the ball out of the the, uh, timeout break. Double-team the ball forced the ball under the deck. Austin Frazier then scored the game-tying goal and then later the game-winning goal to help propel the Wildcats to victory. Frazier had four goals on the day. If we kind of rip through it here, Bobby O'Grady for Marquette, Uh, had a good day, four goals. Will Foster was one and three. Uh, Devin Cohen, four and oh. So I mean, Marquette got some scoring out of some dudes here. And then we look at the faceoff battle, 13 to 35. So Villanova slightly edged them out, thanks to Justin Coppola going 21 of 30 on the day. So he had a hell of a day. And we see this a lot where the guy who spells the faceoff guy kind of has a crappy day, but the main faceoff guy does well. And that's what you know really helps their team. And then, in terms of scoring, Frazier led all scorers for Villalley, well, led all scorers in terms of goal scoring for Villanova with four goals. And then it was Matt Licata and Patrick Daly, who each put up three and one. Campbell was held to two goals off 14 shots, Matt Campbell was. So that is not very good. Had he shot the ball a little bit better, they probably wouldn't have needed overtime in this game. And then we look at the goalie battle here. Once again, rough day for goalies across the board. Offenses are starting to really hum. Uh, Will Vatan six saves against 15 goals against for Villanova. That is terrible. Uh, Lucas Lawis had a better game. He goes 11 saves against 16 goals against. So overall, hell of a game here. And once again, I said, we will talk about playoff scenarios a little bit later. Here is the game-winning goal that Frazier scored. So I'm going to shut up. We'll let you watch this. That's it. Pretty easy there, right? Make it look like you're about to dodge. They don't come out and really guard you and get on your hands. And Frazier stuck it. And that is the ball game for Villanova. Next game I want to talk about here is UMass against St. Joseph's. And what we have here is beyond this being a conference game and having all sorts of implications and being important, because if UMass could have won this game, they would have been tied with St. Joseph's at three and one in the A-10. They end up losing this game. Now, I say this game was crazy important because if we look at the faceoff guys, we've got the drip king, Caleb Hammett, going 12 and three on the day against one of the best faceoff men in the country in Zach Cole. Who went 11 of 23. So Caleb Hammett, the drip king, showed up with his Riz fully loaded and he uh, actually got the better of Zach Cole. And that does not happen very often. And that's why this game ended up coming down to the wire. If we come down here and we look, Alex Keener, no, 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 uh, uh, Mason Ber- uh, Briegman. He gave UMass the lead with one second left in the third quarter, and uh, UMass led 10-9 going into the fourth quarter, and a really boring fourth quarter that saw only two goals scored, but both of them were by St. Joe's. They tied it up with eleven eighteen left. It was a levi Versch goal unassisted, and then with ten thirteen left in the game, uh, Levi Anderson scores his 31st goal of the season, and that gave St. Joseph's a one-goal lead that they held on to through the end of the game. Like I said, Hammett, hell of a job there, 12 of 23 against one of the best guys in the country, uh, and Hammett's a young guy, so that that's going to be huge for UMass moving forward here. Uh, Carter Castillo 1 and 2. You know, they kind of spread it out here for UMass. Nobody went off and got crazy. Similar for St. Joseph's. Matt Bomer, 2 and 1. Levi Anderson, 1 and 1. Uh, Steven Dwyer, 2 and 0. Colin Reich, 1 and 0. You know, they got it done. Carter Page, quiet, 1 and 0 here overall. And then in terms of the goalie battle, Matt Note, he did—he played yeah, not slightly. I was going to say he played slightly better. Shane Ryan did a very good job for St. Joseph's in cage. He had 11 saves, 10 goals against. He has that one more save than goals against. They end up winning the game here in the end. And uh, Matt Note did not have a bad game though. He's been He's had an incredible season in cage for UMass. A big reason why they're in the hunt here within their conference coming into this uh, point of the season. He makes 11 saves against 11 goals against, but he gets the L. Uh, you know, So that kind of stinks here, but that's it. Now we're going to skip back. I always forget the Friday games because I'm a moron. We're not going to forget the Friday games today. We've got Penn State. Penn State just beat up Rutgers. You look at it, they jump out to a five-zip lead. Rutgers kind of answered, then another run. It's 8-3 at this point. Uh, What was it at halftime? It was... seven three at the half and then they score you know what four of the first five goals to come out so they rolled Rutgers overall here it was kind of ugly if we look at what Rutgers did nobody really did anything we look at the faceoff battle here Rutgers won 15 of 23 so Rutgers did manage to win the bulk of the faceoffs but that did not matter because the Penn State offense was very efficient and operating at a, a really operating at a what I don't even know what the hell I'm gonna say there TJ Malone. One goal, four helpers, Kevin Winkoff, the Binghamton transfer. I keep saying that because I've been impressed with this kid with what he's done for Penn State this season. He was three and one on the day. Luke Mercer, two and two, Ethan Long, two and one. And then in cage, Fracian was an absolute animal. 17 saves against five goals against for Frasian in cage uh, against you know Kyle Mullen, who struggled early especially. It, it, you could tell Kyle Mullen was not seeing the ball well. They didn't pull him early, which I was glad to see. I don't like it when they yank goalies early in games, because I feel like most of the time when you're watching these games, it's not really your goalie's fault, and I get it. You're looking for a spark, but who better to spark your team than the goalie that's been taking the the, the multitude of reps? So credit to the uh, Rutgers staff for not yanking yanking mullen but he did he was having a rough time early in this game but uh fracy yeah he's just been having a hell of a season as well so good job by penn state and we're going to ditch this one and now we're going to talk about the next game that was played on friday uh, i don't know about in terms of sequence or whatever but uh Ohio State against Michigan. They're calling this one of the, the biggest rivals rivalries in lacrosse. It is not that. Very few people, other than these two teams here and fans of these two teams, care about this rivalry. I'm a Cuse fan, uh, and I care about the Hopkins Maryland rivalry. I care about the Army Navy rivalry. There are there's almost nobody in college lacrosse that cares about Ohio State and Michigan. I know they do. I know it's a huge rivalry for them, and I know it's a big deal for the schools. I'm just I'm mentioning. I heard somebody talk about this as if this was one of the biggest games in uh of the weekend because of the football rival rivalry and it's like I could give a shit about the football rivalry between two schools it's what, what what what's the rivalry like between the two lacrosse schools and I just don't think this one's a big deal uh not to not to people outside of it. Like I said, I know it's a big deal to the people who are playing. In this one though, it looked a little bit closer than it was. 1914. The reality was at the half it was close, but that third quarter, Michigan just went on an absolute tear, outscored Ohio State 10 to 2 to break up that halftime tie. And that was all she wrote. If we look at it, it wasn't like a ridiculous tear. Three, six, eh, that's pretty crazy. Eight goals in a row before allowing Ohio State to kind of chirp back into it with you know a five-goal run of their own. But at that point, it was 18-14 by the time Ohio State was done. Bam, he nails one, 19-14, and that is the ball game. And then uh, we look at scoring. Once again, Jack Myers just not having a great season. One and two here. Uh, face-off dot. This was the big stat in this one. That I wanted to talk about. Nick Rowlett goes 15 of 20. Justin Wheatfield or Wetfield, Whitefield, he goes 14 of 17. Uh, Rowlett had an assist. Whitfield had a, a goal, and they absolutely roached them 29 to 37. Michigan won that faceoff battle. That is just absolutely insane. And then we look at it here. Bame had a, I think it was a school record, at least a personal best, but I think it might've been a school record, eight goals on the day off just 10 shots. And that's after I think he went zero for eight the weekend before he stayed after he did a bunch of shooting. After the loss last weekend and this weekend he comes out and he shoots eight for 10 on the day with four GBs, a hell of a job for Bame. Zawada was three and one, Ryan Cohen, three and one, Peter Thompson, zero and three. And then we get down to the goalie battle here. Once again, bad day to be a goalie. Uh, Shane Carr got roached for Michigan, even though they picked up the win. Skyler Wallen, 15 uh, saves against 19 goals against not a bad outing against a team that just had all the possessions and you almost had none of the possessions. And now we go to Denver. I think this was Denver's final home game of the year uh, for uh, famous coach Bill Tierney here. Denver ends up rolling. I'm only talking about it because it was a Friday night game and it was Tierney's final game as the coach. And you see here, they jump out to a 8-2 to lead and never look back from there if we dive into the individual stats for Denver specifically, Alex Stathakis won 14 of the 23 draws. He's had a hell of a season for Denver. A huge reason why Denver is sitting where they are right now, because I actually thought Denver was going to have a rough time. I I was expecting them maybe to even finish as poorly as 500 this season. And Stathakis has been an absolute monster at the dot for them. If we dive into his stats and we look at them a little bit game by game, you see here he has had very few games. Has he even lost a battle all year? He lost that battle against Riley uh, at the dot against Georgetown. He was 7-23 in that game. He also didn't hold up well. Eh, he had a stretch here. You look at this three-game stretch here, Georgetown was a loss, and then they beat Villanova, and then they beat Townsend. So he struggled in those three games, but got back on track here against St. John's, got back on track here against Providence, and uh, he's having a hell of a season, you know. I, I wish I didn't look at that because now I know that he had a, th- a bad three-game stretch, but for the most part, he's been incredible for Denver overall. And then in terms of scoring for Denver, uh, Michael Lamper, 0-4, J.J. Silstrap, 4-0, and Mick Kelly, 1-3, and what did Richie Connell, 2-1. and He's starting to play a little bit better. As I've said a couple of times, I thought Richie Connell could have been one a huge X factor this year, and I think he kind of had a quiet start to the season, but he's been factoring in the scorebook a little bit more often as of late. Last Friday game, I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to talk about this one real quick. Yale needed a win just to continue to make sure they didn't have a bad loss. They did get a win Friday night against Albany. It was, uh, what was it here? Five to three at the half, and then a five-two, you know, a nine to three uh, uh, second half is what get, gets them that fourteen to six win overall. If we look at what Yale did in terms of point scores, Leo Johnson five and two, Chris Lyons five and one. The kids are getting it done for Yale. That's been a problem though. Matt Brandow, his I believe he's still Yale's leading scorer. Let's dive into their stats real quick because on that I am curious. No, he is not. Yeah, he's tied. Matt Brandau is tied with Chris Lyons at the top uh, in terms of their scoring. Why I say Brandow's had a down year though is because I expected Brandow to be somewhere and finish somewhere in the area of eighty plus points, which he is not going to do unless they make a deep run and he just starts going off at this point. So a lot, and I had actually heard people saying how Lyons was probably going to be their leading scorer this year that he was on, he was you know ready to have a monster season. But, yeah, that's I think that's one of the reasons that Yale has struggled is teams have figured out how to quiet Brandow, which has not been something that teams could do here. If we look at Brandow's, bio, and we go into his stats, and you look at his career stats specifically. I mean, look at this. 74 points as a freshman, 99 points last season. So that's where I'm sitting here thinking, all right, Brandau's probably going to go off for a metric shit ton of points. And he, he he's had a good season. Just I, I had him pegged as the best player in the country as my favorite to maybe win the Twarton behind Schellenberger because at that point I thought Schellenberger was going to also have a monster season and go off. And we see he's been quieted 29 and 23 for 52 points, still good. And thank God for Yale that Yale has these young guys that are playing well also, but you know, still a surprise. Uh, next game, we're going to talk about Drexel against number 15 Delaware. I don't know what uh, Delaware is in terms of the inside lacrosse media poll, but either way they're ranked. I have them ranked myself here. And, uh, Pretty tight here overall over the course of the first quarter. Drexel had that 4-3 lead. It was 7-5 at halftime in favor of Delaware. They edged him in the third quarter and the fourth quarter slightly to kind of slow burn to that 18-13 win. And then if we dive into the stats here, specifically, let's look at what the winning team did. I hate it when they don't let us sort these. What are they thinking, man? Jason Kohler, 4-1 and for Delaware uh, from the midfield here. He was 4-1 and for five points. JP Ward, 2-2. and Ty Kurtz, 2-1. and uh, let's see, kill kill carry. Oh, I was going to say, did he get an assist or some crap like that? Nope. Uh, Face off battle. Yeah, it went that went Drexel's way. We're not even going to look at that one though. But uh, once again, goalies didn't have a great day overall. Delaware does get the win though, and they're now six and zero in the CAA. That actually gives Delaware, I believe, the regular season title alone in the CAA. Plus, they get to host the tournament now, so that's a big deal for Delaware. Hobart Richmond, another A10 game where teams are jockeying for position here overall. It was tight early. Hobart, uh, you know, six four had a lead, two goal lead after the first quarter, and then an eight to three quarter over the second in favor of Richmond. Undid all of the dope shit that Hobart had done up to that point, and uh, Richmond goes on to win twenty. Two fifteen on the day if we dig into what Richmond did. They had a bunch of guys put up points. Dalton Young had a hell of a game. Four goals and four assists for Richmond. Uh, Aiden O'Neill, two and three. Luke Graham, four and one. And that is a weird way to spell Graham. G-R-A-U-M. Uh, that's that's just funny. Uh, Derek Madonna, four goals. So Richmond got it done offensively from in terms of the faceoff battle. Split pretty evenly overall. And then goalies, if we pop in here. Once again, not a great day to be a goalie. Richmond, uh, Zach Veek actually did the better job. 15 saves, 14 goals against. His team picks up the victory. Penn and Dartmouth, and once again, just jockeying for Ivy League positioning uh, in terms of the tournament here. Penn beat Dartmouth up. Let's just do our Sam Handley check here. Sam Handley, four and two against Dartmouth. He uh, off just five shots, a hell of a game for him. Uh, Cam Rubin, four and one. Ben Smith, four and one. Uh, Tynan Walsh, one and three. Not a bad job what Emmett Carroll do Emmett Carroll 11 saves against three goals again so he didn't do bad I actually had popped in for the fourth quarter and saw Carroll wasn't in the game at that moment I was like oh crap did he play crappy but they just spelled him deep into the game because they were whooping some ass and that was the end of it again we'll talk about the Ivy League uh Ivy League pens in the tournament I think it's just Yale and Harvard that are jacking for position but we'll talk about that here in a little bit we're getting close we're getting close to it being time. I had to talk about Georgetown and St. John's quick. Nothing huge here. As we look at it, Georgetown jumped out to a 7-2 lead. They had that five goal lead at the end of the half as well. And then that third quarter completely undid St. John's. And that was all she wrote. If we dig into what the Georgetown scorers did, UNC transfer, Jacob Kelly, four goals and three helpers. Syracuse transfer, Uh, Tucker Dordovic, four goals and two helpers. Colgate transfer, Brian Minikis, one goal and four assists. Nikki Solomon, another UNC transfer, three goals and a helper. So we look at what, 7, 13, uh, 18, 22 points out of transfers to lead Georgetown to this victory. Riley was 18 to 25 on the day. James Riley was with a helper. Good job by him. And if we come down here and see what Hinks did in cage, Hinks got all but, you know, the last two, three minutes or so, 12 saves, 10 goals against. They need him to start playing good, uh, consistent lacrosse here because Hinks started and then Scarfenberger was starting and now it looks like Hinks is starting again. So Georgetown's going to want to get some consistency out of the goalie that is actually playing. I don't remember if Hinks was maybe injured a little bit. I'm not sure how that exchange went. I know Hinks was not playing up to snuff uh, when Georgetown was 0-3 at that point, And I think that's when we started seeing Scarfenberger get in but they've gone back to Hanks. Hanks also a transfer. Uh, Where was he the transfer from? Dartmouth, I think, Hanks was a transfer from. So either way, Georgetown picks up the win, though. They needed it. They improved to what on the season now? Nine and three. So they lost the first three games. Now they've won nine straight. They're now 4-0 and in the Big East. And uh, we'll talk about what they've got coming through the weekend and the Big East seating here uh, in the upcoming show during the week. Harvard. Princeton, this game was actually hugely important for Princeton because they wanted to be able to keep pace with, um, Cornell, uh, at the top of the Ivy here. And they did so they beat Harvard, not handily, but they beat them by enough. They were winning 11 to six at the half and then really put them away here in the third quarter, uh, as they, you know, rolled to victory. And if we look at what the winning team did that once again, come on, sidearm sports. Why are all these teams not dealing with the same stats here? Uh, what was it? It was, yeah, Colter Maxey. Eight goals, two helpers off ten shots with four GBs, an absolute monster of a game out of Coulter Maxey. He's been a huge surprise. I I talked about him and I, I I knew he was going to be good this year. I did not pick him to be their leading scorer. There was no chance I thought he would end up being their leading scorer at this point. And now he's playing like one of the best attackmen in the country. He's going to absolutely be an all-American. So a hell of a job here for Coulter Maxey leading um Mackesy leading Princeton. Overall, and then we look at the face-off battle that was split. We get down into the goalkeeping. Michael Gianforcaro another goalie that's right up there. He will absolutely be an All-American of at least honorable mention variety, if not one of the numbered All-Americans. He has 20 saves on the day with just nine goals against. So you know, on a day where it's like you don't beat the crap out of this team, you know, you beat him what 17 to 11. And your, But your goalie ended up with, I've already forgotten what that stat was. Your goalie ends up with 20 saves against nine goals against. I mean, that's that's a win for your goalie. And uh, Fercaro gets my player of the game for this one for damn sure. Uh, again, we'll talk about the Ivy League crap after. Air Force beat Jacksonville. This was a huge surprise. Jacksonville just had to handle their business, and they couldn't do that against Air Force. As we kind of see, the game got tied up at sixes here. Uh, it, late in the second quarter, Dylan Watson. But then Air Force goes on a three-goal run, and uh, they actually were leading 8-6 at the half, score the first goal of the second half, and go up 9-6 and never faltered from there. They slow-burned it to that 15-11 to 11 win. And the weird part here, too, if we're looking at the stats— Air Force didn't win. In, uh, Air Force had more shots in Jacksonville. Air Force put more shots on caged in Jacksonville. Jacksonville actually had more. One more save, so that was pretty even. Turnovers. Air Force turned the ball over less, so that's good for them. But if we get down to here, we look at clears. Air Force only cleared the ball successfully twenty of twenty-seven times. Uh, Jacksonville only failed on two clears. Ground balls. Jacksonville beats them in the ground ball battle. That could be because this is Jacksonville stat book. I'm not sure. Faceoffs. Jacksonville rate r- roasted them at the faceoff dot twenty to eight. I was not going to see, say rape them, even though that's what you're thinking. I was trying to say roasted, but it just came out wrong. And then immediately, I was like, oh, everybody's going to think I was going to say rape them, but I did not say that. It's true, but I did not say that. Uh, so yeah, Jacksonville wins twenty to eight, uh, and that both of them were shitty and man up. But my point being, this stat line would have. Indicated maybe a one or two goal win by Jacksonville, but that was not the case as Air Force wins 15 to 11. Brandon Dodd went two and three on the day, off seven shots, two GBs, and a cause turnover. Hell of a job there by Dodd. And then if we look at what happened with Jacksonville, Man, just didn't get it done. Brandon Galloway, three and two. So that's a huge game in terms of positioning for their conference tournament. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Utah, just wanted to talk about this one because Utah offensively has been awesome. Utah just won their conference tournament again, or their conference regular season title for the second year in a row. They're 8-0 in in-conference play, 9-4 overall. Now, granted, their schedule is not the greatest. They're not you know, beating anybody up in terms of strength of schedule, but they are winning the games they need to win. And it was actually kind of tight here. We see that Gavin Held gave Cleveland State a lead uh after scoring the first goal of the half. And at that point, Cleveland State led six to five, but then Utah scores on a four-goal run, a three-goal run, you know. So Utah finishes out strong and they take that win nineteen to twelve by the end. And uh what happened here? Jared Andriala. Four and two, Ryan Stein's three and two. Tyler Bradbury, the big cat here, he goes for four goals on the day. Uh 20 of 35. As a team, they went uh 20 of 35 at the faceoff dot. Utah did. Uh Cole Brams won 18 of thirty-three, so that's pretty damn good here. And then goalkeeping. Not a great day to be a goalkeeper. Actually, credit uh Cameron Logan for Cleveland State. He had a decent game when, you know, on a day where he got shelled and Utah took a metric shit ton of shots. Utah, I think, has scored 20 goals or more, uh, six six games this year. So they're doing a pretty good job offensively overall. And now we're going to look at what did I miss? Let's rip into the what did I miss portion of this. Manhattan end, ends up winning their regular season conference title, I believe, with that win over Wagner, 6-2. to That had to be an absolute bo- just terrible game. High Point beat St. Bonaventure. Uh, Towson beat Monmouth, not by much, though. Mercer over Queens. The big game here in the America East was Bryant beating Binghamton. So now Bryant is what five and one in conference play, and Binghamton drops to four and two. So that was a big deal here. Vermont is still six and zero. Bryant five and one. Binghamton four and two. And I believe Albany notched themselves uh, punched themselves a ticket in the America East tournament as well by finishing four and two. Who'd they beat? Merrimack, and that was what they needed uh, to do to get in here. I think that's it for these guys. I think these guys are now jumping into. Oh, nope, everybody's still got a game left. So there may even still be some jockeying uh, in terms of positioning for that the America East tournament. But Vermont right now doing a hell of a job. Now, who does Vermont have at the end? UMBC, who does Bryant have to end the season? Brown and Merrimack. So yeah, there we don't know who, who the seeds are completely here overall, but I believe Vermont did clinch the top seed because I believe they may have the, uh, yeah, Vermont has the tiebreaker over um, Bryant. So even if Bryant, or even if they both finish five and one, I think Vermont still has the seed. So they may have clinched that top seed. But as we see here, uh, these guys are still jockeying for position to see who, who gets what I think, I think we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. Uh, so then we're going to go back up. Let's keep going. Robert Morris beat Lindenwood uh, Lindenwood to, uh, continue their season. I think that's it. I don't think I forgot anything this week. So I think we can move on. I mean, there's some games I didn't talk about, but uh, so what? So yeah, that's it. So now here, I'm going to do a little bit of reading. I I didn't want to write this up myself because it was already written up. So I figured I'd rip through the Inside Lacrosse uh, article and we'll just kind of read right off the screen here. So the race for the Ivy League tournament is simple. Yale sitting at 2 and 3, Harvard at 2 and 3. They play each other next week so that is just a play-in game into the Ivy League tournament. 3 of the 4 Ivy League spots are secured after Saturday's action. Princeton at 4 and 1, Cornell at 4 and 1 and Penn at 4 and 2 are all in. The last spot comes down to whoever wins in that Yale and Harvard game over the weekend here. Saturday's matchups between Princeton and Cornell will be for the Ivy League championship. The Ivy League tournament is held Friday, May 5th, and Sunday, May 7th at Columbia University in New York. I've actually played on that field before. On Saturday, Cornell flexed in a 6 day. Yeah, we're not going to go into that, so we don't care about all that crap, but yeah. We we see the Ivy League tournament is pretty much set. We just have to see who gets in. Is it Yale or is it going to be Harvard? And nothing better than that. They play a playoff game to finish the season. Both of those teams. So that's going to be one to tune into next weekend. In the MAC, Manhattan clinched the MAC number one seed uh, and a share of the MAC regular season championship with its six two win over Wagner. Now because of a head to head tiebreaker with Mount Saint Mary's, the Jaspers seven and two will be the top seed in that tournament. And let's see here. Siena had a winner-go-home scenario as well. They end up winning, and now they're going to end up being in the conference tournament as well. So uh, Siena scored nine goals and locked up that postseason berth. Yeah. Okay, so here it is. MAC tournament here. Quarterfinals will be Saturday, April 29th. Number five, Sacred Heart at number four, Siena. And then uh, we also have uh, Quinnipac. Uh, number six seed, Quinnipiac taking on number three, Marist. So those are going to be the first games in that tournament. And then the lowest remaining seed will play Manhattan that uh, Thursday, May 4th. And then the highest remaining seed will play Mount St. Mary's. And that's how the Mac is going to play out. Uh, CAA, Delaware won the regular season title, as I already said, with that win over Drexel. And if we come down into here where they have it, ooh, they don't have it. What is the deal in here? Okay, so yeah, the only thing we know here so far in the CAA, in the CAA, is that Delaware is going to host that tournament, and I'm not sure who else is going in. They don't really say here either, so that must be completely still up in the air. America East, Vermont, they did lock up that number one seed. As I said, they have the tiebreaker over Bryant. And the final spot in the tournament comes down to Sunday as Albany plays Merrimack. As I said, Albany already beat Merrimack, so they've punched that ticket. Uh, so the Danes won, and they're in. And yeah, so I don't know if the seating's set yet, but it looks like those four teams are all that I mentioned earlier are all, in fact, in here. If we dive into the A-Sun, uh, air, like I said, the A-Sun's now up in, up in the air because freaking Air Force beat Jacksonville. But if we come down here and we look... With Utah Air Force and Jackson, uh, Utah Air Force, Jacksonville, and Bellarmine are secure. The last two spots for the A Sun tournament will come down to the last week. Mercer and Robert Morris have the inside track, but Cleveland State is not out of it completely yet. Mercer and Robert Morris are both four and four. Cleveland State is three and five, and they're also still in the mix for those final two spots. A ten. Richmond wins that shootout with Hobart, that's going to help them. Uh let's see here. Richmond takes on St. Bonaventure next weekend. UMass will host Hobart in a key Friday night game while High Point hosts St. Joseph's on Saturday. Uh let's see. And I did I that, I thought there were implications on that, so I don't know who's trying to fight for the final spot here. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Okay. Here it is. Uh, At three and one, the Spiders will be a part of the inaugural A10 tournament along with St. Joseph's. And then it's UMass, High Point, and Hobart who are going to fight for those final two spots. So St. Joseph's is in, Richmond is in, and it's between UMass, High Point. They're both two and two, and Hobart, who's one and three, uh, who are going to play, you know, whoever they play over the course of the final weekend. We'll talk about these more on Wednesday. I'm just trying to rip through them quick now just to continue with the content. And um, I think that's it. I think that's all I'm going to talk about, man. I mean, we're sitting here at, what, 54 freaking minutes. You guys have been listening to me if you're sitting at this point. If you are one of the people, especially if you're on YouTube uh, or anywhere, and you made it to the 54-minute and 19-second mark, throw a comment out and say – I listened to the whole 54-minute episode. Hit me on Twitter and say that you did it. Hit me in the comments on YouTube and say, yes, I actually did listen to this whole podcast. The kicker for me, I always try to keep them around 30, 35, because they do a little bit better on YouTube. I felt like, fuck it. Who cares about my stats overall if I get 100 less views, but I do a 54-minute show, and I entertain people a little bit more, and I do a better job. Let's just do the longer shows. So if you made it to the end of this, please let me know. Yes, I'm listening to these to the end, even when you ramble for 54 minutes because it does matter in terms of positioning and how I do in terms of coming up in the search and YouTube and all that crap. So that's it. But uh, come back Wednesday. I'm not going to let this one sit. I want to do the I want to do the show on Wednesday to make sure that we're ripping through uh, and we're doing the previews for this upcoming weekend. I will talk a lot more about the playoff positioning and what that all means for everybody. And uh, we'll go from there. We're going to have a hell of a weekend of college across. I'm going to pray to God that Syracuse wins this weekend against Notre Dame and that that's good enough to get them in. We're going to see. But that's it. Be sure to like, subscribe, all that crap. As I always say, you go to laxfactor.com. You can support us that way. We do all sorts of shit on here. You can get team apparel. uh, You can buy swag, you name it. And I'm going to shut the hell up now because now we're at 55 minutes and the YouTube gods are going to get angry. So come back Wednesday. We'll do the weekend preview show. We're going to talk about playoff positioning and all that crap. And we'll go from there. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And Hoost is out. Factor Podcast.